Welcome, dear friends, on this wonderful day, wherever you may be, to the Now Next podcast, a podcast where we explore our meaningful now and our meaningful next. I am Sammy DiBiasa, one of the three incredible co-hosts of this podcast, and I have with me my two other co-hosts. Hi, my name is Barry Claire Kunkel, and I am one of the co-hosts. And I, I would like to challenge the idea that there's three incredible co-hosts. I think there's two incredible co-hosts and then me. Uh, but regardless, I'm Drew. I am the el- elder co-host, you know, like the Elder Scrolls, but instead I'm just the old one. And so I'm, I'm mostly here for like dad jokes and references to video games that used cartridges rather than downloads. So that's that's why I exist, I think. But in this podcast, this now next We are talking about vocation and vocation is any meaningful life-giving work for the world. And this season we are honing in on you are called. You are called by the divine or maybe you are called within if you don't vibe with the divine to something beyond yourself. And when we're talking about vocation, it's not a linear process. We super emphasized that last season, but you will learn things you will grow, you will backtrack, you will take a three steps forward, two steps back, but none of that time is a time wasted. All of that is helping you figure it all out a little bit more. And to do that, we have with us today, Emerson Haven, who just graduated with a Bachelor of Arts in Music with a minor in Performance Technology. He hopes to be a stage director and has been accepted at Florida State University's Master of Music and Opera Directing program. He's proudly trans, queer, and from Appalachia. As an artist, he hopes to do what he can to further trans rights and awareness. Emerson, we're so excited to be talking with you today. So today we are diving into this idea that you are called with the fullness of yourself. One of the issues that so many of us bring to this idea of being called, of having a purpose, is that we feel like we have to leave parts of ourselves behind. Parts of not just maybe bad habits that we need to grow out of or things that we need to learn, but things that are truly a part of us that we feel like don't belong. And part of our conviction in this idea of vocation that we are called to meaningful life-giving work is that the fullness of ourselves is called to that work, our strengths and our weaknesses, the ways that we're a part of different communities, the abilities and disabilities that we have, the experiences and the naivete, the assets we have and the needs that we have, our successes and our failures. It's not just part of us that's called to this work, but it's all of us. And that's so important because you are not called to be somebody else. You are called to be yourself in this work. And we don't ever think that God is calling us to be another, to pretend to be anyone else than who we are. Because your call is not an accident. It might seem strange or bizarre at first. Trust me, like the idea of being a pastor for me was strange and bizarre. And then the idea for me for like teaching college classes was strange and bizarre. Honestly, the idea that we would start a podcast that might actually have more than 1.3 listeners like that was strange. And so like this is all strange, but that doesn't mean it's wrong. It's because it's unforeseen. It's because we maybe don't see it in ourselves. It's because we've believed the lies about vocation, about identity, and about the ways that we could never be that thing. One of the things that I was told as I took off on a ministry year between high school and college 
is one of those sort of Christian phrases that feels almost ridiculous because you hear it so much and it makes you want to throw up a little bit every time you hear it. It's God doesn't call the equipped, God equips the called. Blah. It's corny. We've heard it way too much. And still there's something true about it. That the fullness of us called to this thing, we will come to the work that we're called to and we won't be fully ready for it. We won't have all that we need for it right then. Sometimes we'll need a community of support and God will introduce us and lead us into a new community. Sometimes we'll need new skills and we'll find ourselves in educational situations or with mentors who can help guide the way. Sometimes we need new experiences and those risks themselves are where we find us. So that thing that I heard that I was so tired of for a long time still can ring true that God doesn't call the equipped, but God equips the called. Sometimes people might not think that you are equipped or might think that you have something that impedes you from becoming equipped. And that just because some people say no to parts of your identity, that doesn't mean that like you can't be called to some of those places. People can be mean, people can be bigoted, people can have preconceived notions about you and let hate settle in because, you know, we're all human and we're kind of shitty sometimes. But yeah, what some people say no to, God says yes to. And it's learning how to differentiate what God is saying versus what people are saying. Because sometimes people can be the voice of God. And other times they're just flat out not. They're saying some some not helpful things. And you know, Mary Claire, to, to go off of that, I mean, I think sometimes the place where you need to be is where people are saying no, like, because that's where the change needs to happen. And that's not always easy. And it's not always like, I don't want to say everybody needs to take that upon themselves. But sometimes there are spaces that could be great for um, many people if only someone is were to step into it. Sometimes where there's resistance is because you are bringing change. And that can be good. Wow. I love that. Y'all can't see my applause on the podcast, but it's like my, my face is beaming at this point because that, that discomfort doesn't mean that we're in the wrong place. It maybe it means we're in the right place that needs change or that we're, we're faced with a truth that other people aren't ready for yet. And that's, that's not comfy at all, but that can still be the right and true place. Yeah. And so I feel like a big part of it is being in tune with what makes you feel the most alive. Something that I've really been trying to learn more about a rabbit hole I've been going down is this idea of an embodied faith and just like listening to the cues that your body gives you. That can be an indication that something holy is at work in you and through you being in tune with, you know, what your body is saying, what other people's bodies might be communicating to you, figuring out if it's what Emerson was saying, where it's because change needs to be met here and people are resistant, or if it's because you're trying to do something that's just not going to work. And it just takes practice and trial and error, which can be really, really scary, you know? So I was curious if you all had a time that you were faced with resistance and you had to figure out if it was because you're doing something good or if it's because you're trying to do something that isn't going to work. Yeah, honestly, for me, the whole gender thing, actually, for me, it was a it was a really complicated 
journey, which a lot of people don't know the full breadth of because they know I came out when I went to college. But in reality, I started questioning middle school. Um, and I got to a place where I was really, really close to thinking like, I want uh, not like naming it, but like, I want to play with this more. Like I got a relative to get me a binder for Christmas. And then I got kicked out by my dad as a freshman in high school. And one of the things he said to me was, so you think you're a boy? Um, and I was like, no, 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 I'm not a boy that that can't possibly be true. Um, and so I tried to live that life. I was like, I thought literally in my head, I probably just have this issue with being a girl because of like internalized misogyny. If I just work hard at it, I'll like grow to accept it over time. And if I just put in that effort, which is a crazy thing to think about gender, like no cis person I've ever talked to has been like, yes, I'm going to work at my gender. It's just not how it works. And so I, I tried that for a really long time. And eventually I got to a point where it's sort of like, I could do a little bit of makeup. I could perform it. I felt more like drag than anything, but I was like, okay, I'm here and I'm going to be happy and I'm going to be happy. And it just, <laughs> it just did not happen. And I was like, okay, I think I need to go back to the drawing board on this one and think about some of those emotions I was feeling when I was 14, 15, because clearly it wasn't just, I need to work. There was, there was something else going on. Emerson, thank you so much for sharing that, because I think when you brought that to the table, Mary Claire, of like paying attention and being in tune to the things that make you feel most alive and just kind of normalizing, like sometimes that's hard because our society, like you kind of were sharing, Emerson, is telling us to do the exact opposite because we shouldn't be living in our bodies and shouldn't be listening to our bodies. I'm not saying we shouldn't do that. I'm saying society tells us and teaches us that we should do that. And that is really hard. And so like that practice work of listening to yourself just takes so much intentionality. And I feel like for me, so much of my own wrestling is just getting out of my own way and the resistance that I have to the things that make me feel most alive. When I feel most alive is maybe when I'm like sermon writing, which is feels very nerdy. And yet so much of my call to ministry has been met with this resistance, which was really an ignoring and like settling of myself and the trueness that I was. And I am. So just thinking about paying attention even to what things that make you feel most alive and where you're resisting some of that. I want to echo Sammy's gratefulness for your sharing, Emerson, and also Sammy, you know, for your your willingness, because I've been in conversation with both of you at different parts of your stories and been, I think, helpful and unhelpful at different times. And so part of that is where I know that the journey is one where community can be helpful and not helpful, where even people that want to do well and want to try fail at times. And so one of the things that, that is stuck in my memory is how a certain segment of the population that I worked with forever talked about the doctor of ministry degree as just a, as a useless kind of cash cow of a degree. And so this formed in me this idea for years that it was really stupid. If you're going to get a doctorate, it was really dumb to pursue a practical doctorate. If you're going to get a doctorate, you had to pursue a PhD. And that nearly derailed my pursuit of further education because I always love learning more. I think to do my job better, I need to learn more. And so I got into the congregation and I realized I can't leave this. I can't leave doing this work full time. And so part of what I had to unlearn was the kind of prejudice that a few people had brought from their experience about something that they knew nothing about, something that they had no idea about how it was going to affect my life or their life or the lives of the people that I work with. And so choosing to pursue a path that I had this kind of internalized 
generalized dismissal of something that is now super life-giving for me and has made me, I think, a better pastor and a better preacher in the process. And so that level of sometimes it's identity pieces and sometimes it's how do you learn to practice your vocation pieces? How do you actually develop who you want to be and what you want to do? And we are often told no in lots of those arenas. And sometimes we have to challenge those assumptions, even when, like for me, it was really deep in deep in my prejudice, deep in my sense of truth that I was like, oh, maybe that is not in fact reality. It's just something I've taken to be true for so long. What about you, Mary Claire? since you asked us this question. Um, My idea was to give an example of a time where it's the opposite, where I met with resistance because it's not the right thing to do. I feel like an important thing in this regard is it isn't anything that has to do with identity, more like smaller stuff, like in say like leadership positions, directing a documentary, that kind of stuff. I have an idea of how I really want something to be. The whole rest of the class is like, hey, maybe let's think about it this way. And so sometimes getting that resistance and that community feedback can actually change your mind in a good way so that you're not bulldozing other people. And you also don't want people to bulldoze you. And then in other circumstances, I was met with resistance with someone in leadership, but like I could like feel it in my bones. Like, no, this is like, we need to be doing this rather than, oh, I'd really like it. It's really hard to describe without being too vague because I think it's different for every single person, but you can tell when something is not right. Like with what you were saying, Emerson, you have to put so much effort into it without yielding any positive results. And like, I feel like that's a really, really big sign that, hey, this isn't the route we're supposed to be going down. Let's try something new. So now that we've kind of set up what we're doing with the with something, we're going to turn towards really diving into this interview with Emerson, wonderful human being. So Sammy, take it away. So Emerson, we would love if you would be so willing to tell us about who you are and the aspects of your identity that you would like to share. Sure, Um, I'm Emerson Haven. Uh, I'm a Bachelor of Arts in music major with a minor in performance technology, it's a very, very long, uh, long title. Um, I'm a senior this year. It's it's so hard to do about you versus identity because I feel like they're so wrapped up in each other. So I'm just gonna kind of conflate the two. I'm from Zanesville, Ohio, which is a part of the foothills of Appalachia, which really I didn't realize was a part of my identity until I left and then was able to compare. I'm transgender, also bisexual, which is kind of a new thing to come to terms with, but hey, that's fun. I am an artist uh, and I recently changed my major just last February, actually finished up a new major in a year which is kind of crazy, hoping to be a stage director when I graduate and recently got accepted in the grad school program for opera directing. So very excited about that. So I've had a lot of identity shifts in college of like, when I came here, I was identifying as a cis lesbian who wanted to be a teacher of instrumental music and was not very proud of the fact that I was from Appalachia at all. So A lot of things have changed, but also not that much because a lot of that was not really so much me changing, but just codifying what was already there. So you touched on this a bit, but I'm curious how you would describe what makes Emerson Emerson. Two things really define me and it's, they are what I would like to define me 
because I think there are a lot of things we can cho choose to focus on within ourselves and it's about what we choose to bring out. So I'd like, I'd like to think that I'm defined by, I try to be kind to people. I hope that I succeed. I don't always, but I, I try to make that effort every day. And I think by my words and my ability to use words, like the way I have gotten from some pretty tough situations when I was younger to where I am now is, has a lot of times been on my ability to not just talk, but communicate and talk to other people. So I think those two things are pr pretty central to me. I would also say that I'm pretty goofy. And I think that also, <laughs> that also is pretty Emerson. Yeah. One of the things that I've missed most because of the pandemic is that interpersonal engagement, right? Like, because I, I remember that kind of goofiness, but but we haven't been in the same room since 2019 or early 2020, like weeping that we've lost all that time. So it's fun to hear you describe that and then to like go through those memories and recall some of that. So I'm curious as, as a person of faith, you know, you've been a part of our campus ministry and also being someone who's also been often outcast by the church. What is your approach to this idea of vocation, this idea of having a holy purpose that you're called to serve, even as you've been challenged and and disregarded and and oppressed in ways by the people that talk about that kind of sense of holy purpose how do you reconcile those things i'll be honest and say it's been a really tough year for that especially with how hyper online we are i found it really hard at times to i still am a christian but i find it i found it hard to call myself that sometimes just because not only directly towards stuff towards trans people but also just and anti-vax stuff stuff with like the insurrection in january like where it's been really hard and kind of humbling i can't just say oh they're not real christians because you could you could turn that towards anything we are all christians and there are people who call themselves christians who are behaving that way right now and that's that's hard to be able to progress on that front you have to claim them as a part of the of that community as difficult as, as that is. When it comes to vocation and purpose, that's also something I struggle with in the arts because I also think that is some, something that can really be pushed against in certain Christian circles. Or I sh maybe the, uh, the better word is not understood. There's so many pieces of art that are actually very Christian in heart and mind, but the imagery doesn't coalesce with the typical conservative imagery that we expect with art and so that's something i've been grappling with as an artist um i'm gonna bring up a work that's definitely very controversial but it's it's called piss christ i'm not sure if any of you have heard of it it's very intense but it's actually made by the artist who made it is a catholic and basically what it is explicitly is he found he found the crucifix of jesus had a cup of pee of his own urine and took a picture of it the picture is actually very moving and basically his reasoning behind it was he is a catholic and the whole idea of the the crucifixion is that it was suffering and he felt like people were taking it too far away from suffering making it too commercialized like easily marketable and he's like we are forgetting that jesus christ died on the cross and that was not pretty it wasn't just like holy holy light it was bloody and gross and painful and you can like or dislike that art but it's coming from a place of faith 
And that piece was absolutely vilified by many religious communities at that time, which it makes sense. I mean, it's a piece that's kind of designed to outrage, but it was funded by one of the National Arts Commissions. And there was a huge boycott and a call to defund some of those national arts organizations as a result of this piece getting made. So it's stuff like that where I feel as an artist, I am called to say things that do come from my faith, but don't always coalesce, maybe not quite that strongly, but don't coalesce with what we think of as being church appropriate. And yet they are godly because they are talking about issues that deal with people. And the Bible is not as like clean and sanitized as we would always like to believe. I think we're all just nodding in agreement because we're like, and same. (laughs) Mm -hmm. That is beautiful and true and necessary because when you sanitize capital punishment, you forget the reality of what it is. And the crucifixion is capital punishment. When you sanitize that kind of suffering and forget what it is and just make it kind of redemptive, then we feel like, oh, well, we can force people to suffer because it's not that big of a deal. When in fact, like, you know, it's the biggest of deals. Pointing us back to that honesty and that truth telling and that art, I think is such a holy an important thing to do. Even as we talked about before, people will say, oh no, we shouldn't do that. With also the removing of suffering from the crucifixion, it makes it easier to ignore the reality of death especially in America, we are so privileged as as a first world country. There are still people dying, but if you are fortunate enough to be at the very least some kind of middle class, even lower middle class, you can kind of be insulated from that death, both within our own country and especially from other countries. I mean, I know just reading about things that have been going on in India right now with the coronavirus, like it's really everything that we were afraid of at the beginning of the pandemic is happening there, like right now extra variants the hospital systems have like been taken down there are mass cremations because there are not enough like graves for the bodies and yet i have not seen the outpouring of grief for that from communities that i generally think would be interested in that and i think it's easy to say that's far away from here so it doesn't matter and it doesn't affect me And yet, one, we should care as Christians about other people in our lives and uh, and on other sides of the world. And two, it's a pandemic. It could easily, if we do not do something to help, it could also hurt us. And we have to acknowledge that interconnectedness. We are not on an island. You've kind of touched on this in your answering of other questions, but how do you personally view religion and spirituality in your own life? It's something I come to terms with every day, I think, because it's, it's sometimes, it's sometimes hard for me. And this, I'll speak openly about this of like, faith was something very important to me as a young person. And then I kind of as a result of being kicked out. And that was something I did with my dad. I kind of fell away from it for a while and would actually, I actually could not go to church without having an anxiety attack. Like I could not sit through a service, um, which was really difficult for me because of that. And so it took me a long time to kind of be able to find my way back. And it's still a process I'm in the middle of, I would say. Because for me, I know that like God is love and he loves all of us, but I have difficulty separating God and 
religion. I want to become more educated overall about theology because there's many things that I know to be true in my heart that I can't argue with facts from the Bible. I'm not able to quote specific lines, you know, and I'm not saying that you necessarily need to be able to do that to be a good Christian, but I don't think this is the goal, should be the goal of all trans people, but with my particular strengths of connecting with people, talking to people. I do feel called to try and talk to people who are either doubting or think that they know something and my very existence sometimes proves them wrong (laughs) of like what they think trans people are, especially people of faith. Being able to speak that common language with people of faith, specifically the Christian faith is, is really valuable. So for me, I think faith is like knowing God is love. Religion is more as like, okay, what does that mean in practice? Like, how does that actually transfer into the wider world? Yes, God is love, but I mean, there's so many different denominations. Like everybody kind of has a different interpretation of what that means. So how does that manifest within how you worship, how you serve, who you serve? Are there good ways of serving? Are there bad ways of serving? Stuff like that. Earlier, you mentioned that you're from Appalachia. You kind of alluded to feeling like some sort of like shame from that and not being proud of that, but you've experienced a turn in that area. And I was curious if you could elaborate a little bit more on that. It's something I used to feel shame on in two accounts. One, I am a young queer trans person and it's a very red area, generally speaking. Um, there's more nuance to that. I've realized I've got as I've gotten older than what a lot of people realize. The term redneck is actually from like union busters and who like and union strikes. But as of right now, it's cur- currently it's very red. And then the other thing was more from an elitism and classism perspective of I've heard it reduced to it's just a bunch of hicks, you know, and they're and honestly. Even in like, especially, not even, especially in like memes online of people are so willing to dismiss this entire area, which is suffering, which has like a median household salary of about 27K per family, which is horrifying. And so I think it took me a while to realize, A, there's a lot more nuance with that in Appalachia. You would hear people make jokes that that were honestly pretty problematic, but in terms of how they actually treated you, it would usually be fine. I was out as gay for all four years of high school and can honestly say the most bullying I ever received was some girl who tried to make fun of me for the lunch I was eating and told me I looked like a boy and I barely knew her. And it was like, that's not even an insult, which is that's funny now. Definitely, it's not perfect, but in some ways, I feel more at ease there with certain things than I do even at Capital because people are so blunt that I know I can talk about it versus some he- people here are so afraid to say the wrong thing that they inadvertently they would never get to know like certain aspects of me as a trans person because they're so afraid to offend me. And then the other thing is, again, it's like a lot of the things that people assume, oh, they're stupid. People are just overworked. And when people are overworked, it's a lot easier to get them to turn into crap like Fox News because you go, you work maybe a 4 a.m. to 1 p.m. shift or a night shift at Walmart. Most of the jobs are like Walmart, fast food, like that's, that's what we have available. You go home and you try and take care of your kids and work with them 
on their homework, which you're too exhausted to do. And you don't really have enough money for healthy food. Like you have food, but it's not really nutritious. So that doesn't really bring you any more energy. And all of the people in your life watch Fox News. So that's what you watch too. And it's not like that people are stupid. It's that critical thinking takes energy. And when you don't have enough food, you don't have good food, you are struggling to survive that energy. You don't have access to it. And I, I don't think that's something people think of, of critical thinking is a luxury in some ways, both in terms of learning how to do it at your school and having time, having the place. Oh, and do your own research. The New York Times is a paid subscription, but Fox News is entirely free. I don't want to make excuses for the people in, in that area, but there's a lot more nuance. My first church was in Appalachia. So I, you know, was in a county that, you know, had a lot of farming until there was coal. And once there was coal, they got out of farming. And then once coal went away, because these are, as you're saying, these are intelligent people who developed a language and a culture and a way of life that worked, but they've just been consistently abandoned. Can you really blame them for grasping onto the, the lies that they're being told, even if their lives because at least they're still there. One thing is the energy industry really preys on people in Appalachia to the point where it's, I get why people are afraid of clean energy because if you've been forgotten all the time by your country, your needs have been ignored and this is the one steady job you've had, it, it makes sense. And something I will never forget, and I remember thinking how weird this was in high school, an oil company would come and give us a presentation about how cool and awesome this company was. And they would give out every single year four or $500 prizes to like best grades, best STEM, um, best attendance and most improved. And every year they would do that, have some people put on a skit, a skit about what it means to be professional and then finish it with a plug of and like just so you know this is who we are and we really love hiring people and it was kind of offered as a way out and I, even at the time I was like this is really weird that like you're an oil company I don't even remember which one but that you're an oil company and you're coming and doing this to to children and saying this is how you get out of poverty. Like this is how we promise you'll have a stable job and actually like make decent money. That's, that's horrifying. And it's horrifying because it worked. And Emerson, I have appreciated this conversation so much because of, you know, earlier you mentioned, you know, I'm not trying to make excuses for these communities or for these parts of my identity that have shaped and formed me but also your willingness and ability to be curious about them and wrestle with them is so huge. It's something that I feel like we don't always talk about in our own discernment. Like some of that is just like wrestling with these different like parts of ourselves that we didn't necessarily have control over. And so I appreciate that so much because that takes a lot of work and intentionality and so I'm curious also, like, how has this work of wrestling with these identities and your identities as a whole, like the fullness of who you are, inform your purposes? That's been a big one for me because, and again, being super op open in high school, especially with like trying to be a gender that I wasn't and dealing with a lot of personal stuff going on in my life. I didn't really feel like I had a purpose and I was not actively suicidal, but I certainly could not imagine a future for myself. And the way I dealt with it was work. And I still, I will work myself as hard as I can. So I don't have to think about that, which worked really well when I was applying to college. I mean, it's more healthy than some coping mechanisms, but still no person should need to work themselves to the bone for any reason ever. 
period. For me, college has been really about finding purpose. I kind of picked music ed when I went in when I when I was in high school because I was like, well, I'm good at music. And by leading sectionals, I've kind of discovered that I like teaching people. So I guess this means I'm going to be a music teacher, which is a very logical conclusion to draw from the amount of information I had at that time, if a little, like it was a bit surface level. And so as I got to college, I was an instrumental education major, which is really easy to forget. I was a double bassist going to do strings. And I, you know, got here and was like, well... I really hate playing the violin and (laughs) I love playing the bass, but as a strings teacher, most of your students are either violinists or violists, which are functionally the same like technique. I was like, so if that's going to be like 75% of my job, maybe, maybe I should look into some other things. And I heard, um, some of the voice majors perform and I was like, God, I've always loved theater. One of the things that made me realize maybe I should be a teacher was helping out some friends at my music theater camp with their auditions and coaching them. And then they both got like parts after they auditioned. And I was like, that was a cool feeling. So I switched to vocal ed and it was closer like to what I wanted to do, but I hadn't really even thought about vocation still yet. I was very passionate about education and still am. Like that's not my major anymore, but I would still consider it part of my vocation. It's just going to manifest in different ways than the public education system specifically. It's, uh, but I remember thinking of all these issues that I had with how we had to do things and not with how my professors taught us, but more so like why to be a music teacher, do I either have to teach small children or be a choir director or a bit slash band slash orchestra? Like, why is it all, why are we not teaching students to write music? Why are we not teaching students like more solo rep? Because honestly, you look at the amount of people who pick up an instrument and keep playing it throughout their life. And it's really small. And it's because people learn on large ensembles, which gets what's really hard to do when you're an adult, get a room full of people together (laughs) to like do something like that kind of independence. And it's not really anybody's fault. It's just kind of how things have developed. And then society has developed a different way to make that harder. And so that was going on. And eventually I was like, you know, something else is missing here. And finally I did parade fall of my junior year. Um, It was the first musical I got to be in as a guy, which was huge. I, every single other part from high school, like I was Lori in Oklahoma, which is the female lead. If you don't know that show, very funny to watch me in a wig um, from those old videos. (laughs) It was a good wig. Parade was something special and just, it's such an intense story. And to be told through music, it kind of brings those emotions out of you when it's really easy to make things clinical. Music forces you to like think with your heart. And doing that felt like the work was so important and it was like vital. And I was like, this is what I like need to be doing. I need to be doing theater because I need to be talking to people directly. I need to be working with people in a way that allows them to be creative, that allows me to be creative. I was basically those last couple months of being in that major trying to fit my core choral lesson plans, trying to force them to be theater, which I guess goes with this idea of like, what is good resistance and what is not productive resistance. This is something I need to do. And the fact that I'm from Appalachia, the fact that I have a single mom, the fact that I'm trans and queer is especially why I need to be in this area at this time. And especially from a behind the scenes, because we're seeing a lot more diversity 
on stage, on screen, but it's that behind the scenes stuff that's going to be critical because when you've got a cast that's all people of color, all queer people and a straight creative team, then like the actors are the ones doing most of the work and have least ability to advocate for themselves. So, I mean, which is the case of most workers in the US. So having actual representation behind closed doors on the creative team, on the producing team, that all matters. That's powerful, Emerson, thank you. We've talked around this a lot. Given all that you've experienced, are there parts of your identity that you're hesitant to share with others at this point in time? And what makes it that way for you? Honestly, the parts that I'm most hesitant are actually the ones I'm most proud of in other parts of my life, and that would be being trans and being bi. And that's the thing that I sort of brought up with Appalachia. Being gay in Appalachia versus being trans in Appalachia, for me, were two very different experiences. Now, when I was out as gay, I was out as a lesbian, which is a very different experience than being out as a gay man in Appalachia which is also something, I'm not a gay man, I'm bi, but it's similar. Like any idea that men could possibly like men is very threatening to a certain kind of masculinity. (laughs) Um, Even if you're bi, they're like, well, if you're bi, so you're secretly gay. The stuff like that. Um, I worked at Walmart over the summer and over Christmas break, and I was a thing that we call in the trans community stealth, which is basically you present as if you were cis and you don't bring it up, which was honestly not even the thing I went in with the intention to do. I was just so scared because I didn't know how people would react to that. People get angry at trans identities because when people don't understand something, people sometimes think you're trying to call them stupid. And especially in an area where people are being called stupid all the time, for not correct reasons, people can get on the defensive. And I'm not, again, there are also just blatant transphobia, but there's also, and I see this even on Capitol's campus of the like, oh, I'm, I mean, I didn't mean it. I didn't mean it like that. I mean, God, you, you know that, right? You, you know that I did because you know me and I'm a good person. When it's not about good person or bad person, it's just like a crappy thing happened. Let's move on. To this day, my coworkers don't know, except for a couple people who knew me from high school. And, you know, they had to know because, oh, your voice is an octave deeper and you have like a mustache now. Like it's, it's hard to avoid that conversation, which actually makes it scary because I do you'd be surprised for people who know you pre-transition it's come to the point where I realize it's not about how I look if people misgender me sometimes because looking like this at my job I somebody who knew me from high school we were on like color guard together came up to me and said hey girly um in front of like the whole the whole room and I was like hey Cheyenne and she was like oh my god your voice is so deep I forgot that you were trans how are you <laughs> Thank you, but this is not, this is not the time. We're in the break room, you know, and like everybody's around, and I'm like, who heard? Who didn't hear? Like, it's funny, but it's also it's also scary, um, and it's you know, it was a similar thing with like in field placements as a teacher. It's like sometimes I came out, and sometimes I didn't as as trans, and it's it's hard. I'm I'm at a point in time where I don't need to come out to explain myself to people, as in. I don't have the immediate, you're in my room and I don't know what pronouns to call you. Like, I don't get that so much anymore. So now it really is entirely up to me to say I'm trans and it's a whole other form of coming out because it's the difference between, I don't know what to make of you. Okay, now I know what to make of you. And I don't, oh, I assume that you are blank, blank and blank and that you're a cis guy, which comes with, 
so much more baggage than you would think just based off of who you're talking to because everybody has a different idea of who that means and so for some people that just means i mean to be blunt that i have a penis and i can go use the urinal with everybody else but for some people that means that oh you're living with a girl which i do i have a two girl roommates or some people it means um even as much as oh you don't want to like you don't get in fights like you don't like you don't feel that need to like hurt or be harmful. What do you mean? And then sometimes it's like, I want to explain that, well, I'm trans. And so I've had a different experience. And sometimes I don't, because I want people to know that men cannot, like, don't have to just be violent all the time. But how much does it suck that for me to be seen fully valid, that experience is fully valid. Like if I share that and that I'm trans, a lot of people will be like, oh, well, that's just because of your different experience. And because you're man light. I have the privilege of manhood now, but it can be ripped away at any second because as soon as people are aware of my transness, they can just decide that I'm a woman actually and treat me just the same, regardless of how I look, sound or act, which is just wild, very surreal. Um, and it, it just makes me think, all jokes aside, like the person who runs through, goes through my brain with all of this is this person named Brandon Tina, Tina, who was a trans man in the late 90s, who passed, had a girlfriend. Uh, the girlfriend, her brother, figured out that Brandon was trans and decided he was a lesbian and raped and murdered Brandon Tina. Then Brandon got buried in a grave with the wrong name on it. It's stuff like that. And I'm lucky that my mom was accepting and I kept my name. That's actually one of the main reasons I kept my name was that like, if I die, no one can take it away from me. Thank you for your honesty there. I really appreciate it. This kind of connects, but what have you collected on your journey that you want to keep from all of these experiences? Some really great and some like really awful. And what do you want to leave behind to like free yourself as you're navigating these like new waters and new journeys? For me, I think the biggest thing I want to keep is that one, I exist. I've really had to fight to have an identity, which is crazy. And like, I have one now, which is, which is insane. Like to feel like you don't have any identity to being like, yes, I am a person. <laughs> that's, that's really cool. And also the idea of like, I have a purpose. I have a positive impact in, on the world. And when people tell me I'm good, they're not just saying it to say it it's coming from a genuine place. Cause that was something I had more love in high school than I really ever think I realized. And I look back on that time, not with regret, but with like, wow, you really didn't realize you were, you were surrounded with love, but you, you didn't know how to take it because you assumed, especially because at that time I felt like I was living this fake life that it had to be fake love as well. And that's not true. And so it's been really, gratifying to realize that the love that I'm surrounded isn't for this like I always assumed in high school it's like it's for that other person that like they think I am not the one that I actually am like imposter syndrome and it's all it's all real love and that's so hopeful and like gratifying and it's something I want to bring to other people too of like even if I'm bringing you're sad and I bring up bring up this good thing about you to cheer you up I'm not saying that just to cheer you up. I'm also saying it because it's true. So those are some things I want to bring with me. Things I'd like to leave behind are the idea that like mistakes aren't okay. 
especially when it's like if you're in that mindset where you where you think love the love that you're receiving isn't real that who you are isn't real and in some ways it wasn't a real reflection of myself but at at my core i still was you know this person in high school pre-transition the uh, when you're living that with that kind of mindset i think it's easy to think i can't make a mistake because then they'll know what they'll know i'm not exactly sure but they will and, and that's so scary and also like again that fear of like being known i think that's one of been the most gratifying things in college is opening up being that vulnerable like letting people in and i haven't always excelled at that including honestly in college years but i've i'm much better than i've i've ever been before i i always think of like aging as like you never really leave those other ages behind you kind of just keep them with you and like as a point of reference in your life so it's like leaving behind the idea that because i was struggling more at blank age that i was in some way worse than i am right now and for transition especially that's difficult because it's like i look and sound how i want to sound now but i that person who didn't look and sound how they wanted to sound is of just as much value and like worth as the person i am today that is so beautiful thank you so much you have me tearing up thank you i i appreciate it emerson one question that we have been asking all of our guests on this podcast is about what they wish they knew of vocation as a kid and so in thinking about the things that you want to leave behind what is something that you wish you knew about vocation as a kid vocation is not a job and i think they kind of tried to tell us about that when we were in school but they were more like vocation is the purpose of your job of like the reason why you do the job but i actually don't think that's true either i think vocation is like what you're supposed to do period and then a job is one way you can go about that like your but life's work is not necessarily like work in the capitalist sense of like i work to get money life's work is like where do i spend my energy and like mental resources in order to put out like the most good in the world based off of my particular strengths and so it's like for me a vocation is like i am an artist i because i am good at communicating because i am creative because i have a mind that is analytical and like I I like to make things and so but that doesn't ha- necessarily even have to be tied to me making money as an artist of course I want to eat and have a place to sleep but but like if for some reason at some point in my life I would have to leave the arts as a profession I would not cease being an artist and I can like move that to other areas of my life and I think that's like we are really trained to view our job as part of our identity and this is something opera musical theater has actually trained me to think differently on when you get a character in that class one of the assignments you get with the character is find five things that define who this person is that is not race gender class profession or age which is really difficult because i think and i even did some of these with myself at the beginning i think these are like the five main things we define ourselves as and so when you have that assignment you have to look like deeper of like who are they actually not just how society treats them that's important too in theater but you still have to have a baseline uh, idea of like theoretically if your character was alone in a room what would they be at their most neutral state 
which you never really, you never get to that ideal in life, but it's a nice thing to strive towards. Emerson, thank you so, so, so much for being with us, for sharing with us, for teaching us, for, for being you and for bringing the fullness of yourself to the things that you're called to. And I am so grateful to know you and to call you a friend, knowing where you are and what you have in store. I'm just so grateful that you are a part of this community. So thank you, Emerson. Yes. And thank you. I really needed to have normally finals. I thrive on that sense of like community stress of like, yeah, we're all stressed, but like you can feel the collective energy of we are going through this together. And I've just been missing that these past few semesters with, with COVID of that feeling of collective vulnerability and energy. So this has been really refreshing to, to kind of feel that with you all today. I'm so grateful for Emerson for the way that he shared his story with us himself with us. For the way that Emerson exemplifies this idea that we are called with something, with the fullness of ourselves. And that that's not always an easy thing for ourselves or others to manage, but that is also something holy and beautiful and true. And the boldness, the courage with which Emerson teaches us, guides us, shares with us is something that has shaped my ministry at Capitol, that has shaped my life as a pastor. And I will be forever grateful for Emerson showing but the call that he's called to, the purpose that he embodies is one that the fullness of Emerson is a blessing. It's a blessing to that purpose. It's a blessing to that vocation. And that is why we are called not just with some things, but with all things that make us who we are. Thank you for joining us today, friends. Now Next is brought to you by the Center for Faith and Learning at Capital University. Due to the COVID-19 pandemic, this episode was recorded remotely over Zoom. Funding for Now Next is thanks to the generous Philip N. Knudsen Endowment and Lutheran Campus Ministry. Our co-hosts are Drew Tucker, Mary Claire Hunkel, and Sammy DiBiasso. Our podcast producer is yours truly, and our seaworthy theme music, Fiddle DD, is by Shane Ivers.